Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's been almost 40 years since the Bhopal chemical disaster where over 500,000 people in small towns were exposed to the highly toxic gas methyl isocyanide. Government estimates that more than 2,000 people died in the immediate effect from the chemical with over 570,000 suffering long-term serious injuries. Our guest today helps us remember the Bhopal disaster. Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. And welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne, and with me today is the awesome Ken Block. Ken, how are you? I'm doing good, Tom. Thanks for having me. Oh, fantastic. Ken, I know a little bit about you because I've done some research and I've been interested in the work you've done. But for those who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about your background, what you're currently doing? Yeah, sure. Um Right now, I work for a, a major petrochemical company in the Houston, Texas area of the USA. I got my start about 36 years ago, I think 37, 1986. I started working at a carbon black plant when I was still in college, my second year in college. And ever since then, I've, I've been connected in one way or another with gainful employment in the, the hydrocarbon and chemical processing industries. My big break really came in 19, 1999 when I hired on with a company, a, a real refinery in, in Minnesota and went to work for them. It was, it was a great learning experience and 
I started out as a, a water treatment specialist, a reliability engineer, water treatment specialist was my title. And I had a, a really great supervisor. His name was Jim Simon. And he saw something in me that he liked as far as my ability to do root cause failure analysis. And uh, we really solved a lot of problems with on the water treatment systems. And uh, he he sent me on, you know, on a bet, he sent me to some advanced training with r- really with more of a, a fine tuning and f- the formal approach to solving problems that we encounter in the hydrocarbon processing industry. And, uh, and so I put that to use. And, and ever since then, I've really been focused on investigations, helping my employer understand things that are important to us, not only as a company, but also as an industry. So that's, that's pretty much in a nutshell what, I, what I'm doing. I'm in process safety now. I'm a process safety supervisor. And so I still get involved a lot in, in investigations and, and the 14 elements of, of process safety from the OSHA PSM regulation, mechanical integrity, management of change, you name it, auditing. I do it all now. Excellent. Excellent. All right. One of the reasons... I got you on besides your extensive health and safety background, process safety, was because of your interest and your past research into a particular incident that happened. Incident's a loose word we could use for it. It's about the Bhopal disaster in India. Now, this happened in the night of the 2nd and the 3rd of December, 84, my concern as I'm getting older is, and I am getting older, unfortunately, is I'm seeing a whole new range of safety professionals come through, a whole new range of people in industry who either haven't heard about it or it's it seems to be convenient for everyone to forget about it. And I don't think we should. I think we owe it to the people who were affected by this to keep it fresh in our mind so that we have a point in time to say, this is what happens when things go wrong, when things aren't managed properly. And if you look at the literature and the, I don't know, the general understanding of the public about the incident compared to say something like Piper Alpha, they're chalk and cheese. They're chalk and cheese. And yet you have a scale difference that's incredible. Now, why do you think it's important that people should remember Bhopal and what actually happened? You know, Tom, you, you really you really nailed it. I think actually, you know, the the fear that I have is is many of the engineers and safety professionals that are entering the workforce today have not really familiarized themselves, nor have they been taught about where process safety as we know it globally started, which is right there in Bhopal, India. And there's there's a number of reasons for that. And one of the things too, I, I got in, involved in a conversation years ago with, you know, it was just a, one of these professional conferences and their company really does not want to talk about it. So, and it's a big, it's a big company in the, in the, uh, in the refining industry because they, they don't feel like there's really any, anything to learn from it. And sadly that, the like you mentioned the public opinion i think that that does you know unfortunately that that kind of impression is is what remains but but really it is important right it it is important that we remember it because there there's so much to learn from it 
And, you know, one, one of the things that, that brought it to where, you know, it is in many people's minds today is that it's just like anybody else, you know, in today. And it was the same way in 1984, where you've got a, a big company and there's a, a big, very public disaster, an accident. And immediately, the first thing that happens is a hold order goes into effect, a legal hold. And that, that definitely was the case in Bhopal. Now, there's, there's nothing sinister or reckless about that, but it's because, you know, some of the investigations that, that I do, I, I am under legal hold as well. It's really the employer saying, be careful with the information that you have, because we expect this to go to court. And that's the right place for us to discuss this information, you know, where it can be analyzed and discussed. And, and so there's a process you follow, right? And, and that's indeed what happened immediately with Union Carbide and, and the Bhopal disaster. But the problem is, like, like you said, you know, the enormity of it, people wanted answers. And so unfortunately, those answers never came because Union Carbide settled out of court. And when things are settled out of court, there's no responsibility to let any information out in the public. And so, so what happened then is people start putting together things that make sense to them. And you get into the situation, I, I'm sure that many of your, your listeners and perhaps you even yourself have heard of the Black Swan by Nassim Nicola Taleb. Yeah. Nassim Nicholas Taleb, NNT. And, and he goes through this process. I, you know, I read that book and I learned, one thing I learned about it from the get-go was that I'm really not uh, interested in philosophy because it's a book on philosophy, but there were really some good nuggets in that book. And one of them that I took away was falsification. Okay. And it's, it's this process you go through where you have a plane falling out of the sky and it falls, you know, into bits and pieces in the Everglades. And then you get, you know, an investigator who has to piece those things together and explain exactly what happened because it's important, you know, and air safety is important, right? Mm -hmm. Well, process safety is important too. And, and you can't go about a disaster of this magnitude with a little bit of information, facts, and then use it to kind of generate an, an explanation for what happened. So like, um, for example, this refrigeration system that was part of their safety system, as well as, you know, part, it also performed a process function, but it was critical for the safety of this plant. It had been disabled. And, mm -hmm. and that was a fact. That was a fact that came out early, but nobody ever explained why. The why never came out, not, not from Union Carbide or the, the other company involved, Union Carbide India Limited, two separate companies. They were partners, but but neither side said why it was disabled. And so why do big companies disable things? Well, it must be because they want to save money. Doesn't everybody want to save money? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's a basic law of life. It's a principle we live by, right? I mean, you know, we, we learned that if, if we spend more than we make, first thing happens is we, you know, our banks get angry at us and then we're, probably going to face some legal action ourselves, right? If we don't pay our bills. But, um, but, but in, the, in, in, the, in the case of the Bhopal disaster, it, it left this impression that you're dealing with a reckless company who was not interested in safety and was willing to, to save 20 some odd dollars a day and put countless lives at risk. And 
and there's no there, there's there's no proof of that. And and in fact, if you use this process that we're talking about, where you have to you prove what something is by doing your best to prove what it is not. And uh, and what you do is you know you start out with a theory and and you brainstorm and you start out with a theory. Why did these guys disable the the refrigeration system? And then you continue to use your evidence to take away any anything that doesn't belong. And uh, what you come out with is some credible and amazing explanations that put you right in the middle of it. You know, you're in the room making a decision that you think is is the right choice. But you have no idea what the future is going to be like and how how bad that decision was. And that those are the kind of things we're talking about if you really take the time to to look at you know underneath what the Bhopal disaster really really represents. Yeah, yeah. Now you've written a book rethinking Bhopal. How did that come about? That's the book. That's the book. You can get it on Amazon or the Elsevier website. Beautiful. And you know, I should also mention that the the book is is also it's it's almost like two books in one. The the first half of it really is an investigation method that that I just kind of touched on that uses falsifiability where or falsification. I call it falsifiability in, in the but it's really, you know, what what NNT referred to as as falsification. Anyway, the the book came about really because I I had been asked by a supervisor of mine who and it was this this was in like mid 2010. My my boss was assigned a chairman's role on an upcoming symposium for the Center Center for Chemical Process Safety. And he was trying to solicit papers. And one of them was just fundamentals of process safety, process safety fundamentals. And what I what I came up with was an idea where um, there's a, in inside of both. I, I thought, well, here's here's my idea. I thought if if I could take the system, get you know, I, at this time I was doing HazOps, hazard and operability studies, and and I thought if I could do a HazOp on some anonymous system with a group of people who I've worked with before in these HazOp meetings, engineers, operators. Um, you know, the, the typical people who will come in, machinists, mechanics, and that kind of thing, and, and assist you with that. If I could get them together, and I was thinking, you know, it, it'll be a Saturday afternoon, we will take a node, and the node will be not known to them, but the MIC tank system in Bhopal, and we just go through this line by line and figure out, okay, if if these processes had existed before the disaster, would we have come across something that would make us go back to the drawing board and fix some things before construction? Mm-hmm. Because by today's standards, which didn't exist back then, you know, the process safety systems that, that became unified as a result of the Bhopal disaster, um, they didn't exist, unfortunately, in 1984. So if we're putting all of our confidence in them now, let's just take this simple system, go through a HAZOP, and then we'll present the the findings at this uh, conference. So my boss liked that idea, but but as now I was going through it in preparation for this meeting that we were going to have, I noticed I started out with what I had already was was the drawing of the tank, and it's it's included in it's in the public domain. 
it's it's in the official investigation report that that Union Carbide published after the disaster. And there's a page that shows the shows the um the 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 tank and and the pumps and all the connections and everything. And there's two pumps on the tank. There's a circulation pump which which processed MIC methyl isocyanate through the tank and through the the cooler, the the refrigeration system. But there's also a transfer pump, which its sole purpose was to take the material in the tank and put it into the production area. So you're mm-hmm. you're you know now you're you're able to move that material where you want to to be able to produce. And so so I had that that drawing that diagram credible source came from the invest the official investigation report. And then, but you, but then you have to really understand maybe a little bit more about how it operates. Okay, well, how does this system operate? And and so I d- just did some web searches, and I came across the paper "Large Magnitude Incidents" by um, A. S. Calicar, and it's it's also available on Union Carbide's website that they have for the Bhopal disaster. And there's a page there that explains how the system worked, and the system worked by pressurizing the tank up to 14 psig with nitrogen. And then that made it possible to move the MIC out of the tank and into the production area. And so I'm I'm looking at the drawing with the pumps and I'm reading this description of how the process operated. And you have a contradiction because the the reason that you have a pump on a tank and you're not going to put a pump on a tank if you don't need it is to move the material out. But then you have this other credible report saying nothing about pumps, but they're, they're doing it pneumatically and pressurizing the material and and building a sufficient pressure to move it out through differential. And and so at that point, you know, the 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 hairs on the back of your head kind of go up. If you're an investigator, you know you found something that, you know, it, it there's there's a reason that this 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 disparity exists. Yep. And and as you start digging into it, you know, you're either going to just get an explanation and say, "Okay, I understand." Or else you're going to be able to dig deeper and find more and more information that that explains more than what you thought you might might know at that at that moment. But either way, you don't leave that stuff alone, and you, you dig you dig in it. And essentially, the book is a discussion about the the evidence that was located after finding that discrepancy and trying to explain it. And really, with with that information. It's it's again a message that you can put yourself in. It's it's not something that you don't have control over. Like that conversation that I had in, originally with with another industry peer, where there's nothing to learn. You can put yourself into these situations every single day. In fact, we do. Yeah, yeah. So what did you learn? What did you learn as a result of investigating it a bit further? Besides the discrepancy with the pump and how they're actually distributing the material. What else did you did you find once you started digging a bit deeper? Well, you can call it a defect, but but defects are usually something that are unintended. But there was there was a decision made early on. Instead of building the Bhopal plant to the specification put out by Union Carbide, which was anything in methyl isocyanate service had to be at least stainless steel, mm-hmm. at least or better. Okay. And and the reason that was is because MIC was is an amazing chemical. The this carbaryl manufacturing process started out with a 
a chloroformate. It's called the chloroformate root, but, but it wasn't methyl isocyanate. Methyl isocyanate was not one of the, the intermediates, but the problem with the original chemistry was that it was inefficient. It made a great product. I mean, this, this is, this carbaryl was the solution to DDT, which was outlawed in, in the United States. It was banned in 1972. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, this, this, this product was, you know, it, no, no surprise, you know, one the greatest chemical manufacturer on the face of the planet at that time comes up with a solution. And, um, uh, you know, we're able to continue having the, the prosper, the, the, the prosperous way of life, the, the standard of living that, you know, the, this EDT made possible without all the, the negative effects and including, you know, wildlife and, and even human mortality. It, it was bad stuff. Mm. But D, but uh, carbaryl was was a replacement that was safe, right? And uh, so anyway, the the beautiful thing about methyl isocyanate MIC was that it was so reactive. You didn't have to put any energy into it to make it react. You just have to bring it in contact with something else, and suddenly it it does what it's supposed to do. And uh, and so it was it was energy efficient. There was minimal waste involved it was it was really a a solution to to a, a waste problem that came up with the first generation process but it was it, it, the the thing about methyl isocyanate is that it's a it's a phosgene derivative and phosgene of course you know it, it, it's it's familiar to a lot of people because even in industry today there's you know when there's a phosgene release and and you're you're exposed to it typically the results aren't good but it was also a, a a weapon used in chemical warfare, mm. and so it's 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 not it's it's a poison. It's it's bad stuff. But but the difference between phosgene is phosgene is a gas at room temperature, yep. and at room temperature, although MIC is is highly volatile, it's it's a liquid, and so you know you your brain is thinking that MIC is easily handled. Because you know, if you release it, it just doesn't disperse like phosgene does. But but still, it's dangerous. But the the thing about the reactivity is that MIC reacts with many things. Probably you know most things. I would say water is one of them. Mm -hmm. But it also reacts with rust, and therefore, like we were saying, it was very clear that the design spec for anything in MIC service was stainless steel or better yep. because that got rid of the the iron oxide you wouldn't rust and it was it was an inherently safe alternative it was it was inherent safety at its finest the uh, bhopal plant was built with mild steel or or iron and not mm. stainless steel just you know material that will rust if exposed to air and you have this very tropical environment that it's being built in it 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 consisted of just normal iron on the vapor systems only. So the tank was stainless steel, but the the vent headers that were going from the tank into the, the air management system or the, the vapor management system, including the lines going over to the vent gas scrubber, those were all just regular steel, uh, not stainless steel. So why did they do that? Why did they do that? Well, again... There, it's really interesting. If you look at the, the tank drawing, you can see what I mean. But but nitrogen 
was part of the air management system as well. And it was constantly being fed into the tank out through the vapor system, clearing out the headspace and carrying whatever remnants or trace amount of MIC was in this vapor space in the tank out to the vent gas scrubber where it was removed by the vent gas scrubber. And the vent gas scrubber, what, what was the purpose for it? It was a pollution control system. You know, so another, and, you know, I just have to mention again, one of these misconceptions is that you know, the reason that that Union Carbide built the Bhopal factory in, you know, a third world nation and, and definitely, you know, in its infancy in terms of its industrialization compared to the U.S. was because of the, the lax and, and relaxed regulations, the regulatory framework. And, and really, that's not true. That, that might be true that, you know, the maturity of, of that framework couldn't compare to what you would get in the United in the United States at that time, but you can look at the design and see that they included everything needed to be responsible, right? But but the decision was made to to construct the vapor management system with this lower grade material, and what that did was it it created a dependency on nitrogen. At this point, if you lost that nitrogen, now, now in, in the industrial world, and for people who don't understand that, one of the ways that we protect equipment and, and preserve it is to create this inert atmosphere. And what you do is you get the air out and instead you you enclose, you, you encapsulate it with nitrogen. And, and since the air is not there, it can't rust. And so, you know, one of the, one of the engineers on the, the Bhopal project said, well, why are we going with this more expensive stainless steel? We can save, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars at least if we just take advantage of the nitrogen. It will not rust. The inside of the pipes will not rust. And the reason that's important is because if the inside of the pipes rust, then if you have this MIC gas and the MIC gas will, you know, it's going to evaporate. If that's going through those lines, you're going to form... Um, what's called trimer and it's 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 a it's a solid white plasticky material that would form when MIC contacts rust it's a rust would be the catalyst in that case mm-hmm. and then you clog up the pipes and if you clog up the pipes guess what you got to do you got to clean them out yeah and there yeah. and and there you have the water washing too water washing was never part of the original intent for that process but because they had problems and and they ended up interrupting nitrogen feed on a continuous basis to deal with another problem. They were having to to flush the pipes out regularly to keep them clean. Yeah. Those are, those are just some of the things that you learn again, you know, this whole thing just kind of comes together with, with credible explanations and not just, well, they were trying to save money. Well, they were trying to, you know, build, build in a place where they wouldn't be held to the, to the same accountability. No, there's, there's things in there. Like I said, if, if you understand, you can put yourself as somebody who walks into a factory today, you can put yourself in that situation and say, am I going to be the person who raises a concern because this might lead to something that, that we will regret in the future? Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't take into account the fact that nitrogen the process of having nitrogen in the pipes could be interrupted at some stage? Well, it's interesting, Tom, because they did. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Have redundancy in the system to prevent that from happening from a design perspective. But when you when you have a problem that prevents you from feeding the nitrogen continuously that you've you've voluntarily accepted to deal with another problem then then it's you you do your best to manage it and that's that's what they did so so a lot of the things that that they that came across again these facts that came out as being kind of like reckless were all things going back, back to how do I manage this situation that that I have to manage? And in this case, it was worker safety. It was worker and public safety because the the these pumps that we're talking about, the, this transfer pump and the circulation pump that were original design on on the tank in the system, um, they they were failing quite quite frequently. And every time they failed and had a, a pump seal leak that would be somebody would have to go out there and isolate the pump and be exposed to MIC. And uh, it was, it was making people sick. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I've heard. I, I'd heard that actually been quite regular, small releases of phosgene, some of which would send people off to hospital. Mm-hmm. I believe at one stage there yeah, was senior management of union carbide was on at the site. There was a small leak which sent 16 workers off to hospital. Okay, if we've got these warning signs happening, and this this is what basically it is, we're having small incidents happening, which basically says there's a problem with the system. Why, in your opinion, don't do you think that nothing was done to, I don't know, rectify the situation, examine the problem and, and see what the the situation really was? That's a really good question. You know, and and I, I think, you know, for anybody who who still has the privilege of meeting, you know, somebody who worked for Union Carbide um, when Union Carbide was still a company, you, you recognize that a lot of people wanted to work for Union Carbide because they hired the best people. I mean, they they were very competitive when it came to snatching up talent. And, and I, I can, I can, identify at least one problem where they just didn't understand they the the effort was there but the solution wasn't they didn't understand how to solve the problem that was causing these pumps to fail so frequently and in fact that that it's really interesting the 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 event that you talked about where it sent 16 people there's there's varying numbers you know nobody's really too sure but it was definitely between 16 and 25 workers it was a it was a catastrophic failure it was on January 9th 1982 and what they found 
was that somebody had put one of the mechanics had put a rogue material in the in the pump it, the seal it was when they when they took the took it out of service and checked you know why did this fail so catastrophically they found that a ceramic material steel had been put in and the specification on that pump was was again stainless steel and so so it, that that's where things actually got kind of combative within the factory between management and it had been cooperative up to that point you know many problems but they were working together to solve them but then management accused a worker for putting that rogue material in and and uh, you know you can you can kind of understand why somebody might be driven to do that if they feel like it's it's going to maybe solve the problem ceramic material not going to rust maybe that's the problem but um, you know, again, if it's a if it's a force related failure mechanism, that thing's going to break apart pretty quickly, and and uh, they, you know the the workers were accused of sabotage at that point. They could not solve that problem. They tried for for many years, well, for since the the plant was commissioned to to diagnose and figure out the problem with the pumps, but uh, there's no information available that suggests that they that they ever did. And so instead of instead of solving the problem, which they couldn't do they resorted to disabling them. They turned them off. Mm. Yeah. Now, okay. On the night, on the night of the incident in 1984, what were the events that unfolded? You know, by that time, the, the plant was out of business. It had come down involuntarily and the the original staff that was there had dispersed the there was no more money they weren't getting paid and it was living out its final days leading up to January 1st 1985 which is when the operating license that the factory was operating under would expire and it wasn't going to be renewed and so there was there was a skeleton crew there and uh, workers from the the battery factory, which was which was also owned by Union Carbide India Limited, were were staffing the the plant. And what what happened was they it's, it just kind of started out as a, a normal night. They they did not have feed out of Hanky six ten because they couldn't get pressure in it because the valve was leaking. And everything seemed normal right about up to shift change. And right shortly after shift change, shortly after 11 o'clock p.m., during rounds on the tank, one of the, the workers noticed that the, the pressure was at 10 PSIG. And that, that wasn't outside, let's say, normal. But things started to really unfold quickly at that point. And unfortunately, they, they knew something was wrong because they were, they, they were sensing it in, in the plant. They could smell MIC vapor, but they weren't sure where it was coming from. And then one of the workers noticed, and this is close to midnight, right about midnight, that the the ground out at the uh, the 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 tanks were covered by a, a concrete. They were encased in concrete. It was a concrete deck, and there was a lot of rumbling in the tank, and you know the pipes were hot to the touch. And shortly after that, the pressure valve opened, and at that point, you're releasing MIC because of the you know the the state of the the system that's been partially dismantled at this point in in preparation for being demoed because it was it was not going to be in service anymore after January 1st 1985 and it was it was chaotic 
the the workers did everything they could to to uh, suppress what was happening, but the unfortunately the the reaction had gone beyond the point of no return by that time. Yeah, do you think the the system was too complex for the workers left, as they said, a skeleton crew, to understand what to actually do to try and control the emergency? You know, Tom, I think there's a good lesson in that, that you, you never underestimate the enormity of an industrial process because what you think, you know, this is simple, straightforward. All you have to do are these, follow these simple steps and we're going to be converting this material. We're taking it, drive it, driving it out of the tank and we're going to make pesticide with it. Sounds simple, but, um, but there's all kinds of complexities. And that, that's, you know, something that's one of the things too, that I think we as an industry, we need to, we need to recognize, or it's, it, it's very clear that it, again, your mind will, will convince you that everything dealing with mechanics, chemicals, energy, it's all very sanitary. It's all very academic. It's all very controllable. And nothing, nothing should should go wrong. And so when I I, I love going to conferences where I, I hear, you know, people who like are, you know, college professors, smart people. And they they explain how an industrial process operates. And and half the time, if not more, I I, I walk away saying, you know, this person has never stepped foot inside a refinery. And, you know, yeah. why do we, why do we want to work? Why do good people still, you know, some of them still want to work, even though it's not as glamorous anymore. Why do people still want to go to work in a chemical plant or a refinery? It's because they like solving problems. Mm -hmm. And if everything really worked that way, where, you know, you got these chemicals and chemicals are, are unlike people where they don't have to go up and go to Starbucks every morning and get their coffee to put them in a good mood. You know, you just put them together and under these circumstances, Oof, you know, you you get what what you know you're going to get, you know, because there's there's no guesswork. But for some reason, you know, when when we when we go into a, a a large manufacturing operation, we are always busy trying to figure out what we why this isn't working the way we expect it to. And it's it's a really fulfilling, rewarding career for most people who work there because it, it's always going on. You know, so so. There's there's a lot of, of things that we we need to train people on, you know, and, and prepare them for when it comes to not underestimating the enormity of any operation that we're we're undergoing, you know, and not just saying, don't worry about it, nothing can go wrong, you're you'll be safe, right? Everything, as long as there's there's material going through the pipes, you need to be you need to be on top of things and aware of of not what you expect, but the things that you don't expect. Yeah. Do you think that uh, being able to either solve small problems on a regular basis successfully gives a, a sense of false or makes people more complacent to the bigger issues that may happen for when things go terribly pear-shaped? Uh, Tom, let's talk about let's talk about Union Carbide again. They were not they did not get to the point where they were, you know, I, I want to say that they were the most successful, the, their competitors hated them because they, they pushed the envelope. Right. And, and they were so good. It's like, we, okay, we, we can't live with DDT, but we can't live without it. So now 
all of the, you know, all of the big chemical manufacturers are going to their laboratories trying to figure out, well, what are we going to do? You know, how, what can we do to replace this material? And, you know, is it, is it any wonder that Union Carbide is the one that, that cracked the code and was able to, to bring something into the market that, that was a solution? Um, we, we, and, and I say we, we as people are always pushing ourselves to go beyond and Union Carbide is a great example of, of that company that, that was successful in doing that. And they, they were so used to solving problems and having the success that comes along with it that I, I do think, you know, and, and again, this is just a personal um, impression that I, that I was left upon doing this research that they, that they were kind of numb to some of the realities of operating a little bit differently in India. And, and I do think that that, that came back that one of the things came back to bite them in this case. I, one of the things to, to recognize again is that Union Carbide, there's, there's a lot of discussion about like Coca-Cola and IBM when, when Union, when the, the government of India put in restrictions that were really going to penalize foreign owned businesses right around this time. And Union Carbide said, no, we're in it for the long haul. We will be here. But what you got to understand is that Union Carbide marketed their materials consistently by going the patent route. And if you know anything about patents, you disclose everything. You you say, here's how we do it. And for this, for for the distribution of this knowledge that, that I've entered into industry, we will experience manufacturing privileges. And we will, you know, we we have good lawyers and we will sue people who try to copy our our formulations our products because you know what's the risk well there's not really a, a risk when the the technology is going so fast that by the time your patent runs out you've got something else to replace it that's even better right which mm -hmm. again was was the track record for union carbide but here they are now why did all these companies with trade secrets like coca-cola and ibm decide to leave india it's because they were going to have to tell their secrets to somebody else because they were trade secrets. They, they, they did not go the patent approach. And again, these are just little things, you know, that, that like you just brought up, you know, just little things that, that made them numb to the realities of doing business a little bit differently. They, they were not used to competing in the commodity market, which is essentially what drove them into manufacturing overseas in India. Yeah. Or mm. do you think that perhaps one of the issues was, Union Carbide, America, Union Carbide, India, there was a lack of perhaps oversight of either the maintenance crews, the workers, the the process set up, the materials used, and it was just assumed that the minimum standards that Union Carbide imposed in America would be duplicated in India. You know, I, I don't think so, Tom, not really. They Union Union Carbide India Limited, UCIL, really counted on Union Carbide and and the, you know the 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 folks who were in the headquarters to um to help them make the right decisions. Mm -hmm. But but again, going back to this, you know, somewhat com comfortableness in the way you do business and and the amount of success that you've had. 
let, let's let's talk about things like you know again now MOC is done much different than it is management of change is done mo- much different than it was back then but there was still you know companies still had kind of a form that they would follow so this gets back to when a decision was being made in India and they would have to check with central engineering to uh, you know which which was in the United States with with Union Carbide headquarters if if these were things that were okay they Union Carbide very rarely, I don't know of any case where they they actually said, no, you can't do that. Okay. And I think that's, again, one of the things that, you know, you can learn from this is that it's it's sometimes not easy to say no. And sometimes things sound like a good idea. When somebody comes to you and says, is it okay if we design this piping system, just MIC vapor, not, not MIC liquid mm-hmm. with a reduced quality of steel because we, we're going to take advantage of the nitrogen. Are you going to say yes to that? Even though, you know, it's in design specs, but are you going to say, we'll, we'll give you a waiver. We'll, we'll give you a, we'll write an exception for this case. You know, you can do that because I see your, you know, you're thinking it through and it's going to say money. Or are you going to say, we can't do that. You're going to design it to spec. Now's the time for, for us to spend money on this. The money's available. Let's, let's go ahead and design it the way we specified it. But, but like I said, I think that in, in this particular relationship, there wasn't a, a really good checks and balance. There weren't good checks and balances. There, there was more of, I think we've got a good idea. And there were smart people. Again, these engineers in India for UCIL were, were very smart individuals. And Union Carbide, you know, the owner of the technology, had a hard time saying no. I, and, and again, I'm not criticizing that because I think that's what we learned from this. I think, again having the fortitude and the courage to say no um, is something that goes a long way in this business in general. And, and again, examples like the one we're talking about here, hopefully give people, you know, a, a leg to stand on when those situations come up and they will come up. Yeah. Look, I've, I don't know. I, I, I think for you, Kenneth, for example, if a manager or supervisor came to you and said, I know this isn't, the way it's supposed to be done, but we can do it. I'm pretty sure you'd actually say, "Well, you're gonna have to give me some pretty solid evidence why we're why we're even bothering to reinvent the wheel that actually works. We've got a system that we know is safe. Why are we tampering with it? Why are we why are we potentially making problems for ourselves? Yeah. All right. Well, Yes, those are good things to to think about before you actually get into that situation. How are you going to handle that? Because they will come up. Yeah, absolutely. All right. After your investigation, you must have some opinion. You must have some opinion as to the underlying causes of why this incident happened. If you were to give a brief description, because we don't want to steal all the thunder from the book, why do you think the incident happened? So the, the book does discuss that. And there is actually, again, you know, if, if you know what to look for and where to find it, and, and it's there's a reference in the book, you can find it, but it's very obscure. It did come out in, in a court discussion. Um, 
I think it was in the 1990s in New York City, but but it, 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 there was something found again through this falsification process. You you come up with a theory, and it's really interesting. And all I'll say is is that I encourage people to go to my LinkedIn account because there's a, a series of four technical articles that yeah. that I published for people who um, just wanted kind of like the Reader's Digest version of some of the main points. And uh, the fourth installment, this, this was done, by the way, it was sponsored by the Bhopal Medical Appeal. And uh, they're really great people there in the UK, Tim Edwards and, and others, that, that, that I'm thankful they, they trust me enough to, uh, to work with me. And, and uh, they, they publish these on their website as well. But you can go there and take a look at them and, and you can read for yourself and the answers there. But I would I would like to say you know that that there's there's two prevailing theories right that that everybody talks about there's the water washing theory and there's this sabotage theory mm-hmm. and what's really fascinating about it is that it's really both the same that if if you really understand the context it's just one side's version of what happened and what they attribute it to and so. You know, what I always ask people is, in your experience, have you ever seen one of these catastrophic um, disasters, whether it's Chernobyl, whether it's the Bhopal disaster, whether it's Hyper Alpha, whether it's Pasadena in 1989, where it was just one thing. Somebody just came up and, and decided to do something mischievous that day. It's usually a much bigger picture. It, it always is. Yeah. There's so many other things, but what's fascinating about it is the you can you can either one of them if you really understand what happened. Just depending on who's telling the story, you can you can say that that person is right. Yeah, yeah. What was the for those who don't know? And this is one of the reasons why, as I said, I don't think we should forget Bhopal at all. I think it should be there in our the front of our mind when we're designing systems and maintaining them. What was the outcome of Bhopal? How many, how many people were affected by this disaster? So officially the count within the first 24 hours was a little over 3,800. Nobody's really quite sure, you know, as far as the first 24 hours, because you have to understand that, you know, this is a very close knit area. Families live together. And that sort of thing and, and the enormity of this disaster and the totality of it wiped out entire families. In fact, you know, there was maybe nobody to claim bodies or or to give an account of people who were missing and that kind of thing. However, the the ongoing disaster, unfortunately, you know, unlike Chernobyl, where you know it's 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 been encased and it's still it's still a problem, but there's been a lot of effort into reme- remediation and minimizing the the ongoing lasting effect the the Bhopal factory still sits there it's it's still you know sitting there in its in a much deteriorated state but much of the chemicals that were there on the night of December 3rd the morning of December 3rd are still there there's there's definitely you know evidence of of birth defects and ongoing impact and and the the last mortality figures that I saw from from non-governmental agencies is up in the 25,000s now. Yeah, yeah. The figures I heard for just ongoing health effects 
is it could be something like half a million people who are suffering severe long-term health effects. And I still believe the water in the area is unable to be drunk, which is from 1984, you're looking at what's that close, well, we're getting close to 40 years now. Yeah, it's not a, the fact that there is those chemicals still on site in a deteriorating facility, is that likely to cause further incidents down the track? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I think again that, you know, as, as far as the, the ability for the Bhopal plant to, you know, grasp a headline, you know, before the for, the 40th anniversary coming up in 2024, uh, I think I, I personally don't think that we're going to see that. You know, it is it is stable, but it's still very dangerous and and not fit for living. It's it's it's, uh, it's disappointing. You know, it's just disappointing. Yeah, I mean, I do understand, and there's a lot of things that people can say these days that you know we shouldn't have done this and we shouldn't have done that. But you're right, you're right. After DDT was basically ruled a no go. Western societies expected greater production. So they still expected good yields on crops and that. And so that's why processes like this were put in place. But perhaps we didn't consider the totality of what happens if things go horribly wrong. Right. All right. Kenneth, Ken Block, I really do appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for helping us learn and for, you know, reminding us about what happens when things aren't designed properly or aren't maintained properly and the possible consequences. For now, that's all we have time for, but I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you very much, Ken. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.